everyone. I'm very excited about this next episode. There are so many incredible insights and tips you're going to learn that you'll be able to apply to your journey right away. It's with the co-founder of an incredible company called BrightHire. And our guest today is its CEO, Ben. What's interesting about BrightHire, and I believe they'll be a huge company very, very soon, are a few things. So the first thing is that stands out is their roster of investors, right? They have Jeff Weiner, the former CEO of LinkedIn, Adam Grant as an advisor and investor. They have Index Ventures, Flybridge Capital, Ground Up Ventures, all Class A investors. The second thing is they are disrupting the hiring space by providing real data to the interviewing and hiring process. So there's no more, you know, pens and papers, there's no more going back and forth. What did he say? What did she say? Real hard data. Now, what can you expect to walk out with from listening to this episode? So the first thing is the founding story of Bright Hire. It's an incredible story. The second thing is tips to change up your hiring process. Where Ben is going gonna where Ben is going to go into what he does at the company and how could you apply that to your company too. The third thing is what it takes to create a company. Ben is a first time founder of an incredible SaaS technology platform and he's gonna talk about his early days, what were the steps he took after he actually had the idea. Now the fourth thing is the company did not start off remote and they had to go remote with the whole entire pandemic. So Ben is going to talk about what they did to go remote. Now Ben was amazing and I want to thank him. This was his first podcast recording and he did a really, really good job. So there's no doubt if you're listening or watching to this episode, you're going to listen or watch one time, twice or three times. You're going to learn so many incredible things to implement into your journey today. Now, wow. now have a great listen. And if you enjoyed, please share it with a friend that you think will be able to benefit from it too. And the last thing, please don't forget to subscribe. Hey, everyone. I'm super, super excited today to have with us our next guest for Founder Stories. Today we have the absolute honor to have with us the founder and CEO of a company that I truly believe is going to be a billion-dollar company within the next few years. I have a question. This company is called Bright Hire, and it's a company that raised $15.5 million to date from investors like Nextplay, Flybridge, Jeff Weiner, the CEO of LinkedIn, has Adam Grant as an advisor. But today we have the honor to have the CEO Ben with us today to share with us the story of how he came to create Bright Hire, his story before Bright Hire, what his childhood was like, and how he is this awesome, awesome dad and brother and CEO who he is today. So Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. So Ben, before you obviously became, to, you, became you came to Bright Hire, you founded the CEO of a, a phenomenal company, and just you look at the raves of reviews, and you look at what people are saying about it. You look at your, your list of investors. You look at, you know, I'm assuming I haven't looked at the financial data yet, but, you know, your customers that you're acquiring, which is absolutely phenomenal. Um, but you're on, you know, obviously I don't know the inner workings, but the trajectory that you have looks amazing. But let's start off, you know, before Bright Hire. You know, all the way before, before Bright Hire, before everything else you did, where are you from and what was your upbringing like? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in northern New Jersey, Montclair, New Jersey, just outside New York City, uh, which is a, a great town. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a really fun place to grow up because it was near New York City. You could go in and you could kind of experience what that was like, but, but Montclair had a culture of its own. Um, you know, historically, it was a pretty diverse town, so I got to grow up with people from lots of different walks of life and make lots of different types of friends. And uh, so it was a good perspective to have growing up. And yeah, it was just a wonderful, wonderful place to live. I actually live there now. Uh, I moved back uh, 
And interestingly, I, I grew up there with my co-founder. We, we've known each other since we were pretty young uh, and he lives there too. So we, we, uh, we live about 10 minutes from each other and um, yeah, it was still, it's a wonderful place. And yeah, grew up with two, sorry, dog is barking in the background, <laughs> uh, real life. Um, it's a great place to grow up and, and yeah, grew up with two, two amazing parents that, you know, uh, wonderful family and twin sister and older brother. So yeah, I very, very lucky. Wow, it's beautiful. Did you recall any pivotal moments from your childhood that made a difference in your, in your life going forward? I don't know. You know, I don't know. I haven't really sat around thinking about pivotal moments from my childhood, but I think, look, having being lucky enough to grow up, you know, you sort of win the life lottery when if you're saying, you know, when you grow up and you have, you know, uh, food to eat and great parents and you know, caring family and you know, you're in a, a nice place with you know, nice town. Like, you, I think. That's probably a pivotal moment. What number one? Just kind of like living, you know, uh, winning, winning the sort of the life lottery in that regard, because that puts you in a very, you know, privileged position to chase after dreams and do things that you know a lot of people don't necessarily get the opportunity to do. So you got to kind of appreciate that because you know you're 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 you have to kind of acknowledge that you're given a bunch of advantages that not a lot of people in the world have. So um, yeah, let's start there. That's so true, you know, especially now where like, um, you know, mental health and like the word trauma and everything about trauma, which is coming at the forefront these days of like everyone's mind. It's like something that everyone's talking about. It's something that the past, you know, the 21st century, which is, you know, things that we're constantly focusing on the previous generation didn't focus on. And for us to recognize that, like the fact that, you know, thank God we don't, you know, obviously everyone has trauma, everyone has mental health, but like <clears throat> to recognize like how blessed we are to grow up like that and then eventually to pass it on to our children too. It's such a, to be grateful like that is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just important to recognize if, you, if you've actually started, you know, the game on first or second or third base, just, you know, it's not, you know, it's not negative, it's it's positive, but you, you should be kind of thankful and, and recognize that and, and recognize that not everyone has that opportunity. And so we got to, you know, at least I personally think that you should go out of your way to kind of lend a hand and help other people get into the same position. That's kind of your responsibility. For sure. I'm assuming, you know, we'll get into it shortly, but like how your own personal values tie into you founding a company and the company specifically that you founded, um, yeah. you know, I'm sure has a big part of it. But before that, I want to get into what are you specifically grateful for today? Like three things you're grateful for. Uh, health, family, and the opportunity to work on something. You, know, you spend a lot of time at work or, you know, a lot of people spend a lot of time at work. And so the opportunity to work on something that I'm personally passionate about, that I enjoy, that feels, you know, kind of meaningful. I mean, those are three big ones right off the bat. Right. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And it's like the most important things in life. You know, it's like you think about the pillars of life. You know, there's obviously family, um, relation, you know, family relationships. Obviously, health is the second thing. And then obviously work, being able to do th something meaningful. You know, so tell me about like this. You know, you weren't an entrepreneur. Um, you obviously you had I mean, from our previous conversation. You had two previous startups. One that unfortunately had to shut down. And we'll get into that emotion, emotions about shutting down a startup, which is, you know, it's a big learning curve, but also you had another another startup before. But you're interested in entrepreneurship. Um, when did this come about and everything? Yeah, I would just I, I would say there's a difference between being interested in entrepreneurship and being interested in technology. Mm. They're, not, they're not, you know, they're not one and the same. You can be an entrepreneur and not work in technology. So, you know, I was uh, pretty, pretty trying to be pretty entrepreneurial pretty young. I had a neighbor who I'm still very close friends with, one of my best friends in the world, and we lived two houses down and, you know, we would, I mean, have schemes on schemes. You know, I like, you know, we 
we had this one thing we were like building bird i don't know where this came from we were building bird houses out of like natural like wood and mud we, th we were like these are going to be amazing we'll sell them to the art museum you know and then we had another scheme uh i don't know we were probably eight years old maybe nine and we were like taking stuff out of our attics like our parents you know heirlooms and I don't, we didn't really ask permission we put them in a wagon and we were literally pulling them door to door in the neighborhood like knocking on people's doors being like you want to buy any of this stuff uh, and god knows what we were selling you know like family heirlooms and, and things of that nature to like you know um i grew up there's a public pool kind of across the street from my house so which was pretty lucky because in the summer you know there's just cars up and down the street you know hundreds of people and so it was like very high traffic area so we would, you know, obviously do like the lemonade stand thing. We would sell candy. Then there was like the ice cream truck, which would park in front of the house a lot because there was ice cream truck with service in the pool. And we would sort of like build these relationships with the ice cream truck guy where we would send his stuff his way and then he would send people back our way. So I was, I was always like pretty interested in entrepreneurship, just not necessarily technology. That just wasn't something that, you know, anyone in my family worked around or wasn't necessarily at the, at the front of my mind for until much later, um, uh, you know, in, in, into, my, into my working life. So tell me about that interest in, interest in technology, but I love the fact all these types of things. You were, you were everything from those 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, everything. You were a real on, you know, you were that kid that, um, were you the trouble kid in the neighborhood? Or were you just a hustler in the neighborhood? You and your friend. I, yeah, I wouldn't say I was like, I wasn't the trouble kid. Yeah, we weren't the trouble kids, but we weren't, you know, weren't the best, but we weren't trouble. You know, somewhere in the middle, you know, we were, um, it was all very innocent. It was like, this is a good way to make money. I mean, same thing. We would shovel driveways together and then we we both got snow blowers and then one of our scheme not a scheme but we would go these huge driveways you know there's one of the streets in my town some of these houses are really big and if these massive driveways i mean like 50 100 yard driveways and so we'd go up and knock on their door with like you know two young kids with shovels and be like can we shovel your driveway and they'd be like sure you know, it's a huge driveway you know what what do we need to pay you we'd be like i don't know 200 250 bucks and they'd be like sure i mean this is going to take you all it's gonna take you all night. And then we would like walk to the end of the driveway, pull out our snowblowers <laughs> in like 10 minutes. And we're like, thank you. You know, uh, like you didn't say you cared how we did it. Uh, so I don't know, just, you know, like trying to find ways to make money. And, and, and uh, yeah, I just thought it was fun. But um, yeah, the technology was um, much later. I was in a corporate development uh, role, which is like, you know, m a partnerships and some product strategy at a company that was not really it wasn't a tech company it was a research advisory firm very um you know the original business model was basically writing research reports and then hosting uh like executive forums uh but they had this amazing intellectual property they'd done all this very interesting research about best practices across you know a spectrum of functional areas and and you know mostly focused on large enterprises and a lot of the work that i was doing when i was there was strategy work related to how do we sort of transition this business model or, or extend our our business from you know the, the traditional side of it that we've had for 15 20 years to being more you know data oriented or technology oriented so whether it was something as simple as you know benchmark you know doing these massive uh, employee engagement surveys across you know general electric you know and then what do we do with that data to things that were even more technology forward so that was kind of the entree into technology. We're starting to look at companies that might be interesting partners or acquisitions um, that were doing things related to the problems that we were solving, but in a software forward or data forward way. Um, yeah. yeah. So then talk to me about the decision to go ahead. You know, you're working at these corporate jobs. Um, you know, your life is good. 
absolutely good. You have your 401k probably set. You know, you have your company that, you know, investing in it and everything else. You have health insurance. You have everything going good for you. Why even, even get the thought process of like, let me go ahead and like, you know, let me maybe explore a different career path. Let me explore the option of creating a startup. Um, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I, just to set the context, you know, <laughs> as you know, uh, I wasn't making like time, you know, I wasn't like an investment banker out of college. This is not, it was not one of those deals. Uh, it was, it was a, it was a great company and, and they attracted incredibly smart people and because they attracted smart people, because it was a great company, because the culture was great, they had these amazingly talented, you know, people that I, I don't know if I would count myself among them, but, you know, my colleagues were really smart and, and amazing. Um, and, it, but it didn't pay, like, you know, it wasn't like working at some top tier consulting firm or investment bank. So, and I was also not that well, old. It wasn't a million dollars. It was $250,000. Still not bad. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, let's not, like my, let's say like a fifth of that actually. Um, so, you know, I was a not on easy street per se, you know, not like hard up, obviously, but it wasn't, you know, some high paying, uh, you know, job. And I was also not that old, you know, so I didn't have a lot of responsibilities. So the idea of like risk and leaving a cushy job, it was neither a cu like that cushy of a job, nor was there anything that I was putting at risk by doing something else at the time. And, and really, I went back to, I didn't go straight into just pure entrepreneurship. I left, I went to grad school, I got my MBA, but, but while I was getting my MBA, I effectively spent the entire time there just focused on trying to start a company. I was just sort of like singularly focused on, I want to build a business with, you know, from the ground up and always had lots of ideas and, um, you know, was always thinking about what to work on. So that was kind of how I got into building a startup. And so the first version of that was I was in school. So I was like doing it kind of full time while I was in school, but you know, it wasn't like I'm falling back on nothing. And, uh, um, so I don't want to, I don't want to make it out to see some like kind of hero's journey. Uh, you know, that, that was kind of the first, the first step, um, doing this to start up was a different proposition, uh, later in life and kind of more of an opportunity cost. So then tell me about like, you know, entrepreneurship is not just, and I'm assuming you're, it's not just like, a it, it, entrepreneurship is a career in itself. Right. And if you look at most entrepreneurs, um, they go ahead and found multiple different companies and it could be in the same space. It could be in different types of spaces, but like entrepreneurship for itself is a career that entrepreneurs they do. So my career, for example, someone's career is just entrepreneurship, which I'll start one company. If it fails, they start another and you fail or, or success and like the whole entire thing. But I want to know about like, you know, that, that conversation with your wife, you know, a lot of times, you know, we don't talk as entrepreneurs, we don't talk about this aspect of like, you know, everyone has, you know, if someone is in a relationship at that point of time, being an entrepreneur doesn't just affect you, it affects them too, right? From emotional yeah. time, everything. So like you're, you're in school, you go to, you decide you want to, you know, you leave your job and decide you're going to go get your MBA. Okay. Forget about the student loans over there, right? Which is, I don't even know, you know, a whole nother separate thing. After we have a long conversation, we could have a long conversation with <laughs> But I would advise that choice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but like, after you graduate, tell your wife, listen, honey, I know like I'm a you know X amount of money, in, you know, student loans. But you know, I'm not going to go the safe path. I'm going to go the other path, which is I'm going to go try this risky journey, which can end up paying up much more, and it's the most gratifying journey possible. But I'm going to go this risky journey of launching a startup, and not being able to essentially, I'm assuming you have savings, but like more of a difficult path. The path. What's the, what's the conversation like? So I'll tell you the, I mean, so my actual kind of path was doing this startup when I was in grad school, 
and then a little bit after grad school for probably six or 12, I'd say 12 months, maybe a little longer. So I was doing it for about two and a half, three years. And it was in the career, it was actually in the career space as well, but a different, um, you know, a completely different business for what we're building today. Then I, when I realized that wasn't necessarily going to take off or, you know, I wasn't able to really make it work. Um, I was consulting back at the company I worked to worth prior to going to grad school to kind of make ends meet while I played with, you know, other opportunities. Uh, actually one was in the media space and then eventually, and we can talk about why I kind of decided to abandon that. Um, I was like, I need to join a team. And I was, I was already very, very like enmeshed in technology, specifically in New York. I spent, you know, three years, 2010 to 2013 as like the New York technology scene was pretty nascent, but then kind of starting to form a little bit, just being in that world and meeting lots of entrepreneurs and investors. Um, I just realized that I needed to join an actual technology company. I still had not worked for a software company, a technology company. So then I worked for a company in the software space in the marketing technology company for about two and a half years. Then I joined another company in the analytics space that was much earlier stage, um, you know, to kind of lead operations, finance, and a bunch of other stuff. And I was there for over four years. Then I left to start this company. So the conversation with my wife was actually leaving that my last company. And then, you know, sort of what am I going to do next? Um, and it was, I could join another startup. I could join a growth stage technology company. I could join a large technology company, or I could start my own company. And that was the conversation. It was sort of, Hey, I think I'm going to start something versus do one of those other paths. Um, and it was, yeah, I, I, I worked directly with two founders for seven, almost seven years, right before starting this company. So I was under no illusions about what that lifestyle was like, or what, you know, the journey was for them, very, you know, front row seat to very a lot of stress and a lot of hours and a lot of ups and downs um and, and experiencing them to you know to myself to a good degree and so it was a very honest conversation of like this is gonna be really hard i'm gonna be working a lot there's gonna be a lot of ups and downs there's like a version of the movie where it's a spectacular outcome and there's a whole bunch of versions of the movie where it like flops in the theater and you know <laughs> is that something that you'd be comfortable with um so and that, it was just an honest conversation. And thankfully, uh, my wife was like, I support you with whatever you think is best and you want to do. Um, but it's definitely a trade-off. It's a trade-off for her, for sure. You know, I, I, you know, the hours are very long, so. Yeah, for sure. And wow, it's, I mean, it's amazing the fact that obviously everyone should be blessed like you to have a supportive spouse. Um, but to have that type of thing is so necessary because a lot of times we forget how much, you know, having that, um, having it, being in a relationship, how much Im impacts um, your startup journey to a certain degree, knowing you have a support network to come to, knowing there's someone to support you, to be there for you, and having, you know, to, it's, which is so so important, especially if you have kids and everything. It makes a, a whole entire difference to the whole entire journey and everything. Like, even, you're, you're, yeah. you're, you know, you're married to two beautiful children. How does, this, how does that impact being a founder, being a CEO, and the decisions you make, and running a startup and everything? I mean in many ways, um, you know, just because you have kids doesn't mean there's less to do. So <laughs> that's part of it is sort of figuring out how do you make these things all fit together? Um, my co-founder has two, yeah, has children as well. And so, um, we just kind of have to fit our work around the responsibilities that we have. Um, so that means, you know, I have to put my kid to bed every night. I have to feed him dinner. I, I want to see him in the morning. So 
kind of going on and offline at weird hours because we still got to get the same amount of stuff stuff done, but we're not, you know, it's not like our life is, it's just our life. It's other people's lives. Uh, and so we need to, you know, make time for that stuff because it's really important uh, and then fit our work around it. So that's one piece, um, you know, it shapes obviously the culture we build. We want to be able to accommodate other people like us. Right. right. I don't want to, you know, I don't want, I can't, I don't want to build a culture where you can only work at this startup if you have no responsibilities and it's, you know, 24 seven, um, obviously we have to move fast. That's our, that's the name of the game. And we have to work hard to do, to move fast. But, you know, um, we also want to be able to have people work with us who have other responsibilities that might not be kids. That might be other things. Um, but if we can do it and it's important to us, you know, we should create an environment where that's the case for other people as well. Um, and that extends from like hours to benefits to, you know, all the things that you would provide uh, along those lines. Um, you know, so that's, I'd say that's, that's the biggest one, but there's definitely still trade-offs. Um, you know, I'm, I wasn't working as a startup founder. I'd spend probably, you know, I'd spend more time uh, with my kids, but, you know, working remotely is, a, you know, a blessing in that regard. Um, I personally, it's been, you know, very beneficial for myself. My, my co-founder, I think feels the same way. Because even if you can't, even if you're working a lot, just even being able to field around your family is still, you know, helpful and, you know, gives you energy and, and all that. Right. Wow. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And I mean, there's so many, so many ways to take this conversation right now because we touched upon so many incredible things. You know, obviously leading with empathy, everything from remote work, you know, starting a company during this time and, you know, having a remote work culture and how do you build that up? Um, but be, before we get to that, let's let's take a step back, and you know, let's talk about the idea of how and how Bright Hire came about. Um, I know, obviously, you and your, your co-founder were, were together in kindergarten, so you probably spoke about in kindergarten that you want to start this company together. But um, let's talk about you know previously how this idea came about, um, how you approached um, starting the company, like founding, like you know, finding the, the I guess the the product market fit in the beginning. And, you know, that part, and then we'll take it from there where, you know, I want to hear about like, how'd you convince your first angel investor to give you that, however much money it was, if you remember, and we'll take it from there. I should know who my first angel investor is. <laughs> I'm thinking like, who was the first person? Um, uh, yeah, the idea After for that. Hair, yeah, no, I, that's a different story, but I, I was not, I was not taking my parent, my parents' money. Uh, I was like. If this works out, you'll be in good shape. And if it doesn't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, uh, that's like, there, that's a, there's enough of a burden already on starting a company. I don't want it to be like your money too. Um, uh, you know, no matter how little it is. Um, yeah. The idea for Bright Hour came from uh, a combination of things. I was, I wanted to go back and do something at the earlier stage. My last company had gotten to a certain scale. So I was thinking about what to do next pretty sure I wanted to go back to an earlier stage. I really love that environment. I love the act of like building companies and from a variety of perspectives, um, you know, the product market fit journey, the, you know, early hires setting the tone for the, for the kind of organization you build, um, all of it. Um, and I was actually on fraternity leave um, with, and just kind of hanging out with my last, uh, my older son when he was a baby and thinking about, um, what areas I was really interested in, what I was passionate about, because one of my lessons learned from an earlier entrepreneurial venture was that if you are not really passionate about the problem space that you are working in, it's pretty hard um, because there's a lot of ups and downs and 
you just, you can't be lots of ups and downs. And then also you don't care about the problem you're solving. Um, so I was just sort of thinking about that. And one of the things that, you know, I, I realized was that of all the things that, you know, I'd gotten a chance to work on and, you know, we'd accomplished as an organization in my last company, the thing that I was most passionate about, the thing that stuck with me the most was sort of the hiring and building this great team and seeing people grow in their careers. Um, and then, you know, just kind of thinking about that further and just how central people were, are to, I mean, it's the, they're the main ingredient for the future success of every company, full stop. Yeah. Um, and the way you build that team is hiring, right? And then just thinking about um, that process and how we nearly didn't hire some of the best people we hired. It's like a whisker away from not hiring them. Um, not for any great reason, to be honest, for some subjective reasons. And, you know, we probably missed on a bunch of people that were great and we didn't hire. Uh, and, you know, having had the opportunity to wear leadership hats in other functional areas like finance and sales and so forth, you just see how those parts of the organization run, the level of data, rigor, structure, collaboration that go into continuously refining them and becoming excellent because they're so important. Uh, and uh, there's a huge gap between that and, you know, those functional areas and, the, and those processes and the way they work and hiring. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of reasons why. And, um, and I'd seen a lot of HR technology, you know, in my first role at school, you know, I was primarily focused on human capital space, looking at software companies, there's a little bit, you know, V1 HR tech, and I was sort of like, just put software in the cloud. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I'd always paid attention to that space because of that experience. And then you know, as, as the person holding the purse strings, my last company, you're sort of, you see all the technology because you have to say yes or no to whether or not we're bringing it on. And there's a lot in the recruiting and hiring space that I'd seen. And, you know, 99% of it was to find people, you know, find a needle in the haystack, you know, get some, get an engineer to respond to an out, you know, an email and, you know, enter your funnel, but there was really no technology to solve the act, like the meat of the problem or the meat of the process to help us actually like select the best people, do it really consistently, do it fairly, and so on and so forth. And then as a leader, um, the whole process is like a black box. You just really have no idea. Are we good at this? Are we bad at this? Who's doing a great job? Who's not? Um, are we selling well? And the only glimpse you have of it is, you know, and I, I actually had this somewhat frequently was I would sit in a lot of conversations with candidates to explain their equity as like the CFO. And I would hear how we pitch the company and, and you just see these opportunities to do better. And it just struck me that kind of crazy that like the future of our, of our success uh, rides on this process. That's basically pen and paper notes, feelings, memories, gut, and, you know, games of telephone. Uh, and, and so to make a long story short, I just took that just idea. Um, you know, so one of those, isn't this anything that's crazy? I uh, notions to my co-founder, Teddy, who, you know, I, I mean, I brought him the idea because I talked to him all the time, but also he spent, you know, a huge amount of time in this world. His parents were both in HR for 30 years. Uh, so we grew up with this stuff around the dinner table. Uh, he worked at CEB, which is a research advisory firm that I also worked at in the HR research practice, and then spent six and a half years at LinkedIn. So he's very well-versed in this area and the problem resonated for him. And he'd at the same time seen 
He was on the commercial side of LinkedIn, go-to-market team in a couple of different roles. And he'd seen how technology had really transformed how sales teams could work um, and how data could be captured from the sales process such that you know an enterprise sales team could really understand what's working, what's not working and drive continuous excellence in a world where they used to just rely on, you know, anecdotes and, you know, you know, Hey, you know, why, why are we, why can't we close this new product we launched or why is that person doing great? And this person is struggling. It, it's been, you know, made much more data driven and visible. And, and so we, we saw an opportunity to take the same technology and apply it back to the hiring space, which is actually quite common. You know, there's also a lot of examples of technology that's created in the sales and marketing realm um, that, you know, four or five years later migrates over to hiring um and and we just you know it became hard to envision a future where people are still the most important ingredient for every organization full stop hiring is the process by which you build that team the rest of the organization is becoming enabled and powered in intelligent ways by data and technology but then hiring is still running on feelings memories gut pen and paper notes that that just feel felt like a, hard to envision and, and B, not a future that we thought was, you know, should exist. And so we just uh, felt like we couldn't pass up the opportunity to run at the problem. Wow. Wow. I mean, I, I am so in line with you with every single problem you mentioned. And unfortunately, you know, I think we're, we're, we're miles away from actually fixing the problem. I would think we have companies like Bright Hire that are trying to address it. You know, like you are essentially, I'm assuming most people that are going to be listening to this are familiar with the company Gong. Now, you guys are the gong for hiring, right? But talk to me about, that's amazing. You come about the problem, you got both you decide that you're going to launch this company together. Um, you both quit your jobs. And then you're like, okay, let's start. And, you know, both you, you obviously you dabbled a little bit in entrepreneurship. You worked for, you worked closely with the founders. Teddy came from more of like, you know, the steady trajectory of, you know, working at, you know, the research firm and then on LinkedIn. What was your first step? Did you guys go right away raise money? You try to raise the money? Did you guys, like, you know, take the, the typical napkin story, start drawing it out, and, and you're finding, you know, outsourcing to find the, the developers to build it up? What was your first step that you did once you decided to take that plunge? Yeah, I mean, the first step was convincing Teddy that, you know, he should, he was in a much more, you know, comfortable, uh, you know, he was on a great trajectory at LinkedIn and really loved the company and really loved his team and, and all of that. So, you know, it had to be something really, you know, compelling for him to even consider doing something new. Teddy, I, I, Teddy and I actually did work together uh, previously uh, on on a uh, an entrepreneurial venture, actually like a nights and weekends thing when we were both at our a job at, at CEB, um, where we were kind of helping two people essentially build a a business case and a business plan to raise private capital to go buy acquire a bunch of assets in the media space. Um, like kind of the details of what that was isn't important, but we were just spending nights and weekends together cranking on a business basically. So I'd actually worked with Teddy in that capacity before. So it wasn't like, this is somebody I'm very close with and what's it gonna be like to work with them? We, we actually already had that experience for you know nearly a year. So that was important because you never know what it's gonna be like to really work with somebody um, unless until you do it. And so that kind of risk was off the table. Uh, I just knew that I could be friends with my co-founder, but also work with them. And that we work very well together because we have different personalities and kind of complementary skills, um, you know. But the next step for the business was validation. Um, 
you know, Teddy and I had were fortunate. I had some a bunch of contacts that were you know chief people officers um, in the kind of tech and growth stage company world, and Teddy had a lot of network in larger enterprises from his time at LinkedIn. And so we just went on kind of a, a talking and listening tour where he said, you know, this is a problem. We think we think these are problems and we think this is an, a solution and we think these are the value propositions. What do you think? And we were, you know, emboldened by the feedback we got in that set of conversations um, to, to take the next step. So that was step one was get feedback from the market. Um, and it wasn't a hundred percent of people saying, you know, take my money. Um, but we also understood that, you know, there's a, for new technology and new approaches to things, there's a adoption curve. So you don't need a hundred percent of people to say, take my money. You just need to identify the people that you feel like are, um, innovators or the, the types of folks that, sh- that would lean in psychographically to a new concept. And did they, you know, there was a hundred percent agreement on the problem statement. And we saw that the innovators of the group that we talked to were leaning in and saying like, I would, yeah, I would definitely be interested in, in using this, bringing this into my team, so on and so forth. So that was step one, which just gets some validation for what we're doing. Um, and we're not, you know, my co-founder and I are not software engineers. If we were software engineers, step two might've been build a prototype and start to sell it. And, you know, um, cause that's, that's the, that's the, that's the better version of validation, which is build a prototype and have people actually pay you money, uh, but we're not software engineers. So practically, you know, the next step was well, we need to figure out a way to build this product and we need capital to do that because we need to, you know, hire people to, you know, help us build, build out this product and take it to market. And, and so we immediately went to, uh, you know, we're going to raise some money and, or at least attempt to raise some money and, and, uh, build a team. Um, and yeah, just long story short, we're very fortunate again, you know, the life lottery to, you know, be in a time and a place and in a country and an environment where, you know, my co-founder and I with, you know, a reasonably good idea and some validation and a little bit of experience, we're able to get people to, you know, buy in on what we were doing and, and give us enough capital to start, you know, going and building the, the company. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Wow. Incredible. So then like how many iterations of the product or the idea for the product, what you want to create from the day you had the idea till now? Has it changed? I'm just smiling because no, not really. I mean, I'd love to be like, yeah, we were building this other thing and then we pivoted and <laughs> like, well, yeah, I, I, somebody asked us for our like seed deck a while, you know, it was maybe six, four or five months ago. And I hadn't looked at it in a while. And I was like, it's pretty much, you know, much <laughs> exactly what we said we were going to do. Um, it still prove, you know, there still might be pivots in our future or, or changes of course, but more or less exactly what we said we were going to do. The product is essentially what we thought the product would be. The value propositions are what we thought the value propositions would be. The target customer profile is what we thought the target customer profile would be. So, you know, there's obviously little twists and turns along the way uh, or big twists and turns uh, in the future potentially. But so far it's been pretty true to, you know, candidly what we envision on, on day one. So then let me ask you, is that because you always have sort of that North Star, that goal you created in that first seed deck? You know, you built out the ideal customer, you built out, you know, the use case for it. Um, is that always at the forefront? Do you have like that, you know, hypothetically a massive poster, you know, showing the casing, all that is know that this is how we have to make sure we stay clear to our core mission? That's a good question. No, actually, 
we we've definitely gone through cycles where we tried to be very hypothesis driven and you know test test our core assumptions and um and you know and you know we were you know try to be pretty neutral about what we should do whether we should zig or zag at certain periods of time um but you know i think you know it's probably somewhat attributable to just my co-founder and i have a decent amount of experience in this space particularly he does we have a sense for you know our buyer and what they're you know what, what they what their pain points are I, I sat in like a hiring and talent leader role for a little while i worked at a company where this is what i studied for a bunch of time his clients were the heads of talent of the biggest companies in the world for a long time uh and so you know there was some intuition about we didn't have to learn a lot of lessons to some degree about who our buyer was and what they cared about and how the process worked and so on and so forth i mean we're always learning but you know, there were there was a there was context there and, and intuition and i don't know you know chalk it up to maybe you know luck but we just had a very we just had an idea of how the product should work and why it would be useful if it worked that way and kind of panned out um you know along the, the the lines of what we originally envisioned now i mean sure you know there's definitely little differences here and there and we've learned lessons along the way you know there, there's definitely you know examples where we kind of said we, it should work this way, and we built it that way. And we actually had to change the way it was built a little bit to make it work a little bit better, you know, for our, our customers or the or the use case. But so far, it hasn't been sort of like a major, a major change in course. You know, that's been like, oh, we should have implemented it this way versus that way. Now let's you know, let's not switch that up because it's going to work better, but not you know like a wholesale vision change or anything along those lines. Yeah, I, I love, you know, you constantly mention one of the things I'm constantly getting out of your conversation, our conversation is something you mentioned multiple times already. Um, the contribution of luck, you know, a lot of times, you know, we fall into our own head saying like, you know, a lot of times ego could come involved saying I did this, I'm smart enough, therefore I could do it. And I was able to push forward. And you being able to realize that say, hey, no, yes, I'm smart. Yes, I work hard. And I tried to, I, I tried to become the master of my domain and put in all my effort. But at the end of the day, there's only a certain amount of effort I could put in and the rest has to be contributed to luck. Right? Totally. It's, you, there's no, I do not believe in starting successful companies in, you know, a test tube and you like control for all the controllables and variables and you can will it into the world. That's just not the way it works. There's too many variables, a bunch of, some of them just have to go right for you to be successful. That's just the reality. Um, certainly, it, particularly in like technology, um, you know, where things move very fast and, uh, you know, the, tech, the competitive environment matters, the buying environment matters, the, you know, depending on how you build the company, the financing environment matters. So there's tons of luck and timing involved. I mean, there just is. I think anybody, I, I would, you know, kind of dispute anybody that feels strongly that there's no, you know, el strong element of luck in, in technology entrepreneurship. There's a huge strong element of luck. For sure, you know they say they say this story about um, about Rothschild. I think one of the Rothschilds, how they're interviewing him once, and they asked, you know, what did you contribute your success to? So he's like, it's ninety percent luck and ten percent in my mind, my head. And he's like, if I'm able to change that ten percent for hundred percent of luck, I'll do it any day. You know, that's. But I, I love that. And the second thing that comes about from our conversation a lot is is humility. You know, the humility that you have and knowing that. The immediately you have it is incredible, absolutely incredible to work forward. But 
you know, back to our conversation, you know, there's two pivotal moments, three pivotal moments of a company. There's obviously the founding day when you start it, it's getting that first angel check, and the third thing is always get, acquiring that first customer. How do you convince that, that first customer to take that chance in you? To say, hey, please use Brighthire. I don't know if you had to beg and, beg and kiss their feet. I don't know if you had to use some easy, but how did you get them? I mean, our first cost, I mean, our first using, the first people that used our product were not paying us. We were like, please use this product. Will you, will you consider using this product? Because it was a, you know, a true prototype. Um, and, you know, it was, so initially it was just get a bunch of people, convince them to use our product and uh, warts and all, and, and then kind of slowly make the product better and better while people are using it and get to a point where, you know, we honestly, we got to a point where it was like, we feel confident asking, we feel like we're delivering enough value to ask you for money now. Sure. Um, respectfully, given that you took a bunch of risk, you know, starting to use our product when it was not you know perfect um it's probably different than it's probably different if you are if it's you're meeting a company at that point in time and they and they didn't take that bet on you i think we've been a little bit more leaning into let's just see if we can get them to pay us but you know these were the, uh, the first folks that wrote us checks were people that actually had already paid us mm -hmm. um, they paid us with their time and their feedback and their risk appetite um and you know they're running a business so for them to use your software means that you know they're putting it in you know the line of fire basically and so you know it's not nothing when somebody's using your early version of a product in their day-to-day -day, um particularly in a business in a b2b setting you know they they are paying you uh already so but yeah it was definitely like the happiest moment so far of the entire i mean just <laughs> i think it's like you know just a very unique experience and and um you know probably if you're like a second third time entrepreneur feels good but not quite the same but you know the first time you're like i thought of something in my head and then it became something and then somebody actually thought it was worth paying me money for is definitely a, a little bit of a special experience wow that's, that's amazing i hope you savored that moment for you know for a long time so then so i'm flipping the script from there then you know as a first time founder and ceo of a company that, thank God, is working and going and hopefully going to continue to grow. What were some of the challenges, early challenges? And what are some of the mistakes um, you've made? And Yeah, I mean, there's tons of challenges. I mean, there's challenges all the time. There's no, right. you know, it's, you know, it's not the social network. I mean, I guess there's a challenge in the social network, but, you know, there's like that whole long montage where everything's working and they go from like, I don't know, it is, you know, a hundred thousand users to it's like uh, you know a billion and it was like oh what happened that was two minutes in the movie and it just seemed like it worked really well i'm sure there's a lot of problems um so there's there's always lots of challenges along the way there's big ones there's little ones there's ones that feel big at the time but actually are little um being in other startups not as a founder but just as an operator in other startups for a while before starting this company was beneficial in that regard because you know um, the first time you experience a bunch of mistakes or challenges in that operating environment, they feel like it's the end of the world. And then you kind of deal with them and then realize that actually it's not the end of the world, you know, whether it's, you know, personnel or, you know, product choices or what have you. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's stuff all the time. I mean, nothing massive comes to mind or, or, you know, that I, you know, uh, you know, we, 
you can go down rabbit holes and chase opportunities that you think are the right opportunity. Um, you know, there was a period of time where there was a kind of a segment of the market that we could make, we could have made more money faster serving them. Uh, and we were kind of focused on that for a little while, a couple months and kind of had a great conversation with one of our investors. And it was like, yes, we can generate fast revenue faster if we focused on this segment, but ultimately we believe the big market opportunity is over here. And we are also passionate about that part of the market. Um, and so if there are things that we have to address or questions that we have to resolve or features that we need to build to make that part of the market, you know, as uh, receptive and um, to our, to what we're doing as this other part of the market, we should actually pull that forward. Like, let's do that work now. We don't want to delay that work. So that was a big one uh, for us where we just sort of like said, okay, no, we're not going to do that anymore. We're really just going to focus on this other part of the market, despite the fact that, you know, that part of the market, we could probably get to, you know, whatever it was, a million ARR really fat, you know, much faster. Um, and that was, a, you know, that was a big, good, good decision, but one that wasn't so obvious at the time. Right. Yeah. You know, that's a classic opponent of like, you know, chasing a shiny object. And, you know, so easy, like, like I have this, I could get to a million ARC so quickly and then you can, whatever it is, acquire more customers, raise more money, hire better. And to make that decision must have been a very tough decision to like turn away from that and say, you know what, we're going to stay, stay clear. We're going to stay close to our actual principles of what we're trying to create over here, a real goal. Wow. So, you know, as, what do you, talk, so then as a first time founder, culture is obviously the most important part. Remote culture is the whole entire thing. You, I'm assuming you're remote from the beginning, from day one or, or, um, or not. No, we were not remote from day one. So that was a development of, you know, the pandemic. Um, we were in an office in the West Village. Uh, it, we weren't a very big team then. It was three of us, but it was still the three of us. And we were going to the office every day and seeing each other face to face. So we were not remote from day one. And I wasn't necessarily planning to build a remote company. Um, not that I, I've always, <laughs> I've always really dreaded commuting. It's never been something that I, I always, you know, never something that I look forward to. And, and so, and I did enjoy, you know, working from home in my last role, um, you know, there was a lot of flexibility and I would do it and it was great. It felt like very productive, but it wasn't necessarily the type of company I thought I was going to build or my co-founder thought we were going to build. Um, but, you know, we were, you know, we responded to the situation on the ground and ended up finding some really great people and and it seemed like we could you know i think like a lot of other people we realized you know we can actually make this work um and you know there's we haven't cracked the code i don't think um any i don't i don't think anyone's cracked the code i mean there's some big companies that have been built from the ground up remote first and i think they have they're amazing sort of north stars on things that you should do and get right in that kind of environment but uh but we felt like in hindsight scaling my previous company, the fact that we wanted to look for people who were super talented, values aligned, like we were the right fit for them in terms of the growth arc of their career. And then, you know, so the pool is pretty small at that point, you know, if you're looking for like really specialized roles with all of that fit. And then like you, you add this final filter of, can you get to 245 Fifth Avenue at 9 a.m. Monday through Friday. That just seems kind of crazy in hindsight. I mean, it really does. It's like that pool is teeny, teeny, teeny. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of companies that actually are trying to find the same people. Um, and so removing that final filter is, you know, 
a transformation in velocity, uh, you know, in terms of how teams can be built. And so, um, yeah, we were not remote first, but we quickly kind of attached to this being something that would be a good fit. And honestly, a good fit in terms of some of the values that we want to support uh, around flexibility and the things we talked about earlier. It's, it's about, it's easier to accommodate uh, when people are working from home or working remotely. Um, it's easier for people to have a flexible lifestyle that fits into other things that matter to them um, without the rigidity of going in and out at certain times of day and being offline and, and that sort of thing. So, so as, as, a, as a hiring company then, you know, obviously I'm sure you use your own tool in order to, you know, evaluate for hiring. Um, but, you know, as a hiring company, people are probably looking to you also for the best practices for hiring. And uh, because I'm assuming you're probably going to hire the best talent. But um, what is the, your process for hiring? What are some tips that other companies can implement into their hiring process, you know, in order to attract the best talent? And, you know, and also not just attract the best talent, which is candidate experience, but also the actual process of the interviewing and everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first step is planning, um, you know, really understanding what you're looking for, being super clear and explicit about the skills, traits, et cetera, that are important. And that's really driven off. What does success look like? What are your expectations? You paint, you know, we try to, we paint a version of like, practically, if this person comes into our organization and is here for six months, because uh, that's far enough out where you, you know you can kind of really put real projects and and things that they would work on in place, but not so far out that you're sort of inventing things that you know. And you say like, okay, what what would what would this person look like if they came in and they were wildly successful and effective in six months? Specifically, what would they do? You know, what projects would they do? You know, how would they lead them, and so on and so forth, and just spelling that out very clearly. And if you do that, that really gives you a, a very clear sense for what skills or traits or background or, or you know, things somebody would need to be able to do that effectively um, or what things would be you know, really, really definite, like they must have these things versus some things that maybe you think that they need to have. So maybe they're nice to have, but maybe somebody could come in and accomplish all those things without that. Um, and then figuring out, okay, from there, how are we going to assess against these things? How are we going to figure out if somebody has these skills, capabilities, traits, values, and spelling that out really, really carefully uh, and really, really clearly. Um, and then having an evaluation criteria at the end to say, you know, how confident are we that, the, that these candidates or this candidate has all of these things and with a very, very high probability will be able to, like these bullets will be the description of what they did in the next six months. Mm -hmm. like, do we feel 95% confident that, you know, no brainer, this person would be, is gonna, you know, execute against these things in the way that we describe them. Um, that drives, that helps a lot to, to find what you're, you know, to, to find the right talent. Um, it's a forcing function um, to really be very clear about expectations. Um, and it forces the process to be really, really focused on what matters. Then of course, you know, we use our own software um, and we pull that plan through into the moment, which is matters, right? So we are super efficient with the process we put candidates through. We pull those really important things forward and we're really thoughtful about covering the things that, you know, we want to assess for and covering them as quickly, you know, upfront as possible so that we can be efficient about who, you know, who we progress through the 
the process, both for our own time, but also for a candidate's time. You know, if you have two kind of, you know, open-ended conversations with a candidate, you don't actually get to what the deal breakers are, what you need to know, you're, you're wasting everyone's time. Um, and then we're able to calibrate really quickly, which is super important. You know, people in the hiring process are not pieces of paper and ideas. They're real people. And so, you know, if my co-founder and I are looking for somebody to join our team in a new role that doesn't exist before, we are talking in real time asynchronously and sharing actual substance from these candidates and saying, is this the type of experience that we expect for somebody in this role? Is this what you had in mind? What do you think of this? And so it's this continuous, fast calibration process that helps us line really concretely on what great looks like um, or what our mutual expectations are so that we can make sure we're focused, you know, and, and our assessment makes sense for what we're hoping for. Uh, and then ultimately we want to, you know, use evidence to substantiate our decision-making and have a level of accountability in our process. And so we're not hanging on subject, you know, subjective, you know, feedback and, and, you know, um, fallible memories and, and those sorts of things to make our hiring decisions. But we're saying, we said these things were important. Here's the demonstration of those things. This is why we think that, you know, this is why I think this person's a great fit. And if you have a, dis if you disagree, which definitely happens in the hiring process, we are now collaborating, like people collaborate in life, in business, where it's like, okay, well, you show me, you know, show me where you see otherwise. Now let's talk about that. And we resolve it in a real way. So um, uh, that's wow. kind of our approach. Yeah. I mean, this is like clear, straight, evidence-based hiring. You know, the time frame is so much quicker. Um, it's based upon real data. Like a lot of times, especially specifically recruiters, where people, th most people think, you know, it's a human condition. We think we're better than we actually are, and then we think we're worse than we actually are, right? And we think a lot of times that our personal judgments, our self-judgment of others, and our EQ towards you know assessing other people are much better than the average person out there. And that's the way human condition works. Um, and specifically by HR, where they say where someone takes a resume, it's like, and within, and they always you know proclaim that within 15 seconds I can decide if someone's the right candidate or not. I mean that's the biggest BS I've ever heard, you know, in order to assess that. When you're taking evidence-based hiring saying, hey, we're going to use data. Let's take real data. Was this said during the conversation? Was this not said during the conversation? Is this the, the data? Does this person have the ability to do this job? Not have to do this? Is, is it going to be a, a culture ad? And all these types of things is absolutely incredible, amazing. And, you know, the problem is, I think, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this, is that we're trying to provide technology, um, which whole technology is going to be the game changer, how people get hired, but we're trying to provide technology for an industry that is sort of people that are still in the 20th century type of thing, 21st century technology for people that are still trying to figure this, you know, the process out and everything. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think our platform is empowering for, you know, the, the, the folks on the talent acquisition side, because ultimately, you know, they have to apply uh, judgment in that way because they also are evaluated on, you know, they don't want to send people down the, through the process that ultimately aren't going to be, you know, perceived as the right fit by the hiring manager, hiring team, then they've spent their time with somebody that may not be the right fit, but there's no, there's no in between. It's either I'm sending somebody along and I need to be really, really confident that they're going to be worth the team's time because I don't want them to feel like I'm wasting their time or, you know, I don't pass them along, but now we, we kind of, we enable them to not make that trade-off and to give people an opportunity that may not be, you know, from, you know, central casting, um, you know, to the T, but actually demonstrate that they have some really interesting qualities so that they can open up the different, you know, non-traditional backgrounds. And also so that it's not like a, like a very inefficient game of telephone because you know, everyone has their own, 
preference and they're not always great at articulating what they're looking for. So that's a very challenging thing for a talent acquisition team, particularly around a new role or new hiring managers they're working with is like, I'm sending people your way. You're not, I'm not getting a lot of substantive feedback back about why yes or no. So how can we, how can we actually align on what we're looking for in an efficient manner, right? Where, where we're able to hire faster and get the right person in seat because we're on the same page. And so by bringing information symmetry to the equation, we want to, you know, really make that much easier much more fluid and much faster um, because now we're, you know, we're collaborating on something real, right. uh, not just like kind of playing games of telephone back and forth. Yeah. Um, yeah, and as it pertains to technology, yeah, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of opportunity to improve the way the process works with technology. And part of it's enabled by, you know, changes to the work, working world, right? The fact that we're having this conversation in a mode that can be captured and turned into data and, and collaborated on um, is beneficial. Uh, and it, it unlocks a lot of other opportunities. So, yeah, we should run this conversation through your software afterwards and see what it comes out. <laughs> we certainly could do that. So then tell me first time, you know, what's your message to other founders? You know, you were experiencing this incredible journey. Um, you know, look at the testament that, you know, the, the, the investor belief in you, um, customer belief in you, the fact that you continue to, your employee belief in you, um, you're obviously doing something right. And, and I'm sure it came along with a lot of mistakes also, but you're doing something right. What's your message to other young, the other founders that are either currently in the journey or debating to start the journey? Um, I don't like giving maxims, you know, because I feel <laughs> like, you know, it's like there's every situation is so different. Uh, every person is different. Uh, every opportunity is different. Uh, I would say, generally speaking, entrepreneurship is pretty, ch pretty challenging. Um, and it's a life, it's a definite lifestyle choice. So what that, what that challenge means to you will be shaped based on um, what you're looking for. So you have to really be eyes open and, and understand what you're getting yourself into um, and what the journey is gonna be like. And there are people like me where it's, you know, there's it's a lot of work and, and so forth, but I, I really enjoy it. I mean, I get up out of bed and I'm like, I wanna do what I'm doing that day. Um, there's no day where I'm like dreading the meetings on my calendar, it's never happened. Um, so, as long as you can view it that way, truly and truly like ups and downs, um, you know, that's important. It's just important to really understand what the journey, what the, what the experiences can be like. And, you know, and that there is really highs and highs and very low, you know, you know very high highs and very low lows. Mm -hmm. And you need to sort of be able to, um, you know, roll with it um, and get beyond it. Um, so I would say, and, and then the second piece is, that is much easier if you care about the problems that you are solving. Um, it's just much, much easier to deal with those ups and downs if you're passionate about the problem, you think it matters, it matters to you or matters to the world, and, um, and you're excited to solve it. Right. And, uh, and then also you're excited to work with the people that you work with. Like who you work with is really important. You spend a lot of time with them. So, you know, if those are great relationships and people that you care about and, and you enjoy spending time with, it, it also makes the process, you know, so much more enjoyable. Wow, incredible. So then flipping the script from there, what message would you tell yourself? You know, you have the opportunity, you're, you're just graduating college, you know, you're facing the world, you could get it, go into the snowmobile business, snow, snow blowing business and like, you know, start a whole entire thing of mowing lawns and, you know, plowing garages, or you can, you know, continue staying and doing research at Gartner or one of the, or the other companies. Or you could take this whole entrepreneurship journey, or you could just, you know, be a barista in Montclair at a Starbucks, the local Starbucks over there. 
You know, what message would you what, what is the What is the age? What is, what is my age that I'm giving myself feedback on? You're saying I'm graduating college? Graduate college, yeah, the whole world in front of you right now. So you're yeah, 21, yeah. 22. I would, I would give myself no advice. Um, serious. I, I, I would not give myself any advice because, you know, every decision I, you know, made along the way, every mistake, you know, led to what I'm doing now. And I'm very, very happy with what I'm doing now. And so I don't know, you know, it's sort of like back to the future too. You know, you don't want to go back and change the future and then we're back to future one, I guess the same plot, but you, you don't want to go back and change the outcome in some way. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't think I would have any advice for myself. I would have just done all the stuff that I did, mistakes, whatever, uh, because I'm, you know, very fortunate to be able to do what I'm doing right now. And, uh, and uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. Amazing. I love it. You know, and I totally agree with you. You know, we are, we are a, um, the person we are today is because of all the collective decisions we made ever since we we're a little kid growing up until now. You know, it's not like, you know, you showed up today as the CEO of Bright Hire and you are who you are to know. You are who you are because of, you know, you worked for the startups previously four years. You are who you are today because you tried to launch another company and that didn't work out. You are who you are today because of Cornell. You are, you are today because all the other decisions you made throughout your life. Um, is who you are, an incredibly man, man you are today. And like, you know, going for full circle, um, listening to this, and listening to your, your conversation, our conversation today, you're able to see how, you know, growing up, you were able to realize the ability of how much luck plays into it and how much you want to create value for other types of people um, and how much you want to live in a world that, you know, that it's all about people first because essentially companies are people first and the world and humanity in general is all about when people get along together and contribute together to, to the bigger society. And you see that in the company who you created, and we see that who the man you are today. So Ben, I've learned a tremendous amount. Um, I know I could talk to you for a bunch of more hours, not even a question. We have stuff like we didn't even touch upon, like how'd you get Adam Grant to become an investor in your company and advisor, and how you go about your day-to-day. -day. So many different things, but I thank you so much for this opportunity. There's no doubt in my mind. You know, I hope that you don't forget me when you're on the NASDAQ, you know, taking Bright Hire public. Um, but thank you for the opportunity. And so many people are going to benefit from listening to this conversation and learning, um, learning from you. So thank you. I really appreciate uh, thank it. Thank you. This is fun. I appreciate the opportunity. And I, I hope it was uh, um, interesting to, you know, and, and, and hopefully helpful to other folks who are, who are considering doing the entrepreneurship journey. So. It was. Thank you.